Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So I have Jason Gaynard with me, and the reason I have Jason is because Jason hosted the conference, the Mastermind Talks, where I was able to interview Freeway Rick Ross on the stage in front of – how many people were there, Jason? We had 150 people in attendance. 150, and they were all – I mean, this was a high-powered audience. Everyone was like an incredible entrepreneur, and I don't want to toot my horn, but I think – Nobody really wanted to hear what I had to say, but everybody wanted to hear what Rick Ross had to say. He's the largest drug dealer in history. And Jason, why did you choose him to, to come to the conference? And why did you choose me to interview him? <laughs> Honestly, James, and I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, you know, have a lot of friends who are big names in the podcasting space. I thoroughly believe that you're one of the best uh, interviewers in this space. I mean, the amount of Oh, thank uh, you. research you do on your guests is is really second to none. And I knew going into that uh, interview with Rick, you would be well-researched, and you were. I, you said you read like every article. Oh, yeah. watched a bunch I watched, of documentaries. I watched two documentaries. I read his autobiography. I read other books about the whole Iran-Contra thing where he was kind of um, this pawn in the middle, yeah. uh, which was a fascinating story all by itself, even though it was like he was like a peripheral character in that story. Um, it was still fascinating. So that's that's exactly why I thought you'd be great for it. Is uh, again, you do incredible research on people. You you ask uh, unconventional questions, and sometimes you ask questions that people don't have the the guts to ask. So um, I, I thought it'd be great, and also thought it would be an interesting interview for you. I thought that would probably um, you know it would catch your interest, and you'd want to ask them some great questions. Well, you know, I, I was mentioning um, in the I, so I wrote an article about this interview. And first, the, the the conference venue that was was beautiful it was in Napa Valley. You had like super high powered people there. There was uh, Tim Ferriss as an example, Tucker Max. You know, many many people I am a fan of, and who have also been guests on this podcast were, were at the conference. Um, but uh, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to really prepare. And I I, I always say I never go to conferences unless it's a, a hell yeah. And then I, I <laughs> and then I either charge like. A huge – I price myself out. like So I charge so much nobody could possibly pay me sure. or I do it for free. And this one, I just hopped on a plane and did it for free. That's how much – A, I wanted to go to your conference because I had a great experience two years ago at your conference. And interviewing – once I started researching him, interviewing Rick was just you know like a life-changing experience. And I want to ask you one question. So this is some yeah. of the uh, the one kind of negative feedback I got because, of course, I, I cross-posted this article in various places. Mm. People say, you know, you know, even though the events he, – he, he spent almost 20 years in jail. The events were when uh, took place when he was in his early 20s, when he had really no other options in front of him. Now he's doing all this – you know, charitable work and good things in, in the community. And he even admits, you know, this was not the right choice from, for him, you know, back in his early 20s. It was a long time ago. It was like 40 mm -hmm. or 30 years ago. But the criticism I got was you can never forgive a guy. And what, what do you what, – what, what's your stance on that? 
it's it's uh, I don't like for me obviously again what he did uh, there was a lot of harm I guess in what he did you meet him now I mean just an incredibly fascinating gentleman. fascinating I mean, humble smart uh, yeah. guy. I mean, as for somebody to go to jail for 25 years, get life in prison, teach himself how to read, go so go into jail illiterate, read 300 books, find a loophole in the law in which they they um, incarcerated him as, and then got out, and then has not you know been in that scene, has spoke at prisons and schools and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's something to be said there, and I mean, we all have you know skeletons in our closets to some degree and some you know are bigger than others and some are public and some aren't so i'm usually i try not to be too too judgmental i knew he would be polarizing and either people would love him or they would hate him um but for me fascinating individual and i always i always been uh, enamored by the just i mean whether you're selling you know you're in the drug business or you're selling hair extensions online like alex and mimi i yeah. mean there it's it, it, a business is a business in essence he's just pushing a product that unfortunately is is doing harm but i mean how he grew that to its size and the competition there's a lot of business takeaways there and actually i was talking to cameron harold about it one of his business takeaways that he got is you know everybody that worked underneath rick had a gun so Conflict resolution was a big thing in his business because if you, you know somebody were to get angry with another guy and pull out a gun and shoot them or something like that, it completely blows the cover on his whole operation. So conflict resolution was a really big thing. Oh, oh yeah, and and sorry to interrupt, but we we specifically addressed that in the interview. Like, yeah, you know, we had uh, that that you know, in terms of like leadership, not many organizations that have a billion in revenues. Uh, have all of their employees <laughs> are carrying guns and are willing to use it. Like Rick had a very difficult leader management problem there. Yeah, so I, I, w- I was just fascinated with uh, I, again the 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 carryover between the drug business and and the real business, or I guess legitimate business per se. Um, and uh, you you definitely didn't in a, didn't disappoint in this interview. And and I think you know I think as people listen to this you know so so we're about to get go uh, I'm going to switch over into the interview but as people listen to this and you hear his voice and you he, particularly towards the end where you hear kind of the pain and what he he went through and what how he's trying to help now I think that helps it come full circle for people but but Jason I really appreciate it and I want to thank you for providing the environment for both Rick and me to have that that interview and. Um, just a really great experience and 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 you're you're like a creator of these great experiences so i i really appreciate it well i'm a huge fan of you and the work that you do and i'm glad you were able to uh to come on stage and interview rick and with that uh we're gonna go right into the interview so thanks a lot jason thanks man this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the stansbury radio network All right, so um, very excited that James came back to to join us this year. You can stay seated; you're good. Um, as you know, James James is actually probably one of my favorite interviewers. Who listens to the Altitude podcast? Look at all those fans. There you go. So uh, yeah, James is one of my favorite interviewers, and he's not interviewing me today. Um, he's actually interviewing Rick Ross. Uh, now hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Not this Rick Ross. But the real Rick Ross. So this Rick Ross on the left stole the name of that Rick Ross. I don't know what this guy's name is, even though he's a big-time big time rapper. Uh, the Rick Ross on the right is the second largest, or was, the second largest drug kingpin in U.S. history. 
Um, he got himself out of jail after 25 years after teaching himself how to read. Um, absolutely fascinating story. And at the time when he was incarcerated, he was worth about $600 million. So uh, he wears a very snazzy jumpsuit, and I'm incredibly grateful that he's here. Really excited. So James will be interviewing him, and this, this will actually be going on the James Altucher podcast, and will be broadcasted later. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, Rick Ross. Dude, I, I thought we were going to color coordinate before the event. You didn't call me. <laughs> Red. I didn't know. So, so Rick, I have to admit, other than, like, the, the book, your autobiography, and all the articles I've read, I'm told, everything I know about the crack business I learned from the movie Colors. So <laughs> I have to start off asking you with the most naive questions. I hope you don't mind that. That's fine. Okay, I really I'm wide open. We're, we're going to be open book today. Okay, so... At, and we're going to go all over the place in time. It's not okay. going to be chronological. I really want to know, at the exact peak, what does, because I don't know anything, what does an actual transaction look like? Like, where did you, you were like the top American guy. Where did you get it? Where did it go? How many levels below? What's the money involved? How, mu- how much did you buy? How much did it cost? I know I'm asking a lot at once. I'll remind you throughout. <laughs> Well, uh, I was getting it from, Nicar- from some Nicaraguans. Um, How did you meet the Nicaraguans? School teacher. That's what we learned in school. That's what happened. The school teacher, um, well, well, you know, me and him had developed a relationship because I grew up without my father. So me and a school teacher had developed a relationship. I was a tennis player. thought I was going to be going to college. Uh, I was going to be the next Arthur Ashe, I thought. Uh, so we had developed. Were you at that skill level, do you feel? Um. Yeah, I mean, I could beat, well, I beat a guy that was 100 in the world before. Um, I beat some other guys who were younger than me who, one, became 27 ranked in the world. Um, I, I was close. Let, let's say that. I don't know if I was good enough to, to play on the circuit, uh, but I played with guys who played on the circuit. Let's say that. Uh, I never won the matches that they won, uh, but they could come to the park and I could beat them sometimes. I felt like I had to. Uh, skills to do that so okay so you got you, you you needed something and you would call your nicaraguan friends what would happen well i would basically call them well we started i started a drug business with 125 dollars. i had 125 my partner had 125 we invested it in what was called an a track and uh what's an a track i'm sorry a, i'm always going to interrupt because i don't understand an a track at that time was supposed to be three grams of cocaine, but it was cut, so it probably was one gram of cocaine. Uh, powder? Powder cocaine. Uh, we would I'll take it. <laughs> we would take it and cook it. <laughs> you add baking soda to it, and you cook it, and you turn it into what they call rock. We called it rock. Uh, the government later on named it uh, crack. Um, and that's how we got started. Uh, we went from there. Like I said, this teacher who I had been playing tennis with from time to time, he was kind of like a sponsor, a father figure. Uh, well, I hadn't been around for a while because I'd started selling cocaine. Uh, so when I went back around, he asked me where had I been, and, you know, I'm the kind of person that I hate to lie. Um, so I told him, you know, oh, I've been out selling cocaine. I was a little embarrassed to tell him, you know, what I'd been doing, and uh, he told me to come by his house that he had something for me. 
And I want to I wanna kind of ask all about what was going through your head when you started. I know it wasn't the drug of choice at that time in South Central L.A. No, it but, wasn't. But, but I still am really curious, just again, at the, at the peak, you're already sitting on everything. Just what does the organization look like? And then, I wanna, and then I'm curious how you built up to that. You mean when I'm on top? When you're on when top. When I feel like I own the world? Yes, when you feel like you're <laughs> on the world. Oh. And, and just to be clear, this is not about any of the kind of legal or all, all the other arguments that revolve around the issue of what, you know, this does to society or whatever. I'm really right now curious, Nicaragua to you, what happens? Well, you got me on the top and I got about 45 guys that goes down. All getting from you? No, these are just my workers. Mm-hmm. These are like the guys that help me supply all the guys around the country. Because at this time, when I'm on top, I don't touch drugs, I don't touch money anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of distanced from both of them. So like there's somebody says to one of your guys, okay, pick up this car here, bring this money here, and then things happen. Yeah, I probably, and, I probably and- would be the one who said that. Uh, it's a car over here. Go pick it up. Uh, there's some money over there. Go pick that up. And then they would call me and say, oh, we picked up money over here. We picked up drugs over here. Uh, this guy wants to negotiate his price. What do you want to do with him? Uh, how do you think we handle that? Those type of situations. Which guy was negotiating? Uh, say, for instance, somebody had been buying $200,000 worth of Coke, and they were going to buy 400000 this week. Because he was bringing in an extra $100,000, he felt that he should get a better price, and that would take some negotiation. Okay, so that would happen after your guy picked up some, some cocaine. He would call you and, and negotiate, look, I'm going to pay this, or? Yeah, kind of like that. We would have the cocaine already, hmm. and he would be wanting to buy the cocaine. Because he's going to distribute it. He's not smoking four hundred thousand dollars worth. Oh no, no, no. He's definitely a distributor. <laughs> so you're, you're just dealing with distributors at that point. Yes, pretty much distributors. I mean, there was a few distributors that did smoke, uh, but we we tried to encourage uh, the workers not to smoke because uh, it's, it's hard to do business when you when you when you're using drugs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Scarface said, "Don't get high on your own supply." Yeah. So uh, um, we tried to practice that. So so okay. At that point, what are the what are the quantities we're really talking about? Like, and this is again at the peak, and, and I'm curious about the star too. But at the peak, what kind of quantities are we talking about? Uh, me, I was going through like 100 keys every day, sometimes 200. How much does one key cost? At that time, probably about anywhere from 12 to 15,000 a key. And this is important because we'll get to this later. But if you weren't going through Nicaragua and you were going through, let's say, an American contact, how much would a key cost you? Mm, Twenty. So $8,000 more, roughly. Yeah. Okay, so then once your distributors get it, are you involved anymore? Like, if they, they're obviously then sending it. Where do they send it? Oh, all around the country. All uh, around the country. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the documentary uh, that they did on BET about the American gangsters. Yes. Uh, well, most of those guys on there, I knew them when they were starting out. Even though they got bigger, you know, when I went to jail, they, they kept doing their own thing, and, and, and some of them gotten huge. Uh, but I knew most of them when they were getting started. And what would ha- like, what are, what are happening at the lower levels, like at kind of like the street? Like, let's say now it gets to a city or it's in an area. What ha- what's starting to happen at the – when does it start 
where chaos starts to happen. Maybe it never happens. I don't know. Well, well, I guess it, it really starts on the street, you know, because um, on the streets where to happen is a lot of the problems that I saw happen is one person who may want to buy some drugs but doesn't know the connection would come to another person and say, hey, will you go to your connect and get me the drugs and I'll sit in the car while you go in the house and get the drugs. Well, when that person comes out the house, if he comes out the house, sometimes they go out the back door and never come out. Sometimes they come out and the drugs are cut or, or chipped or so small that uh, it's not what they paid for. And those are the things that causes problems. And, and this is going to sound like odd sort of issues, but I'm dealing, I'm, I'm trying to understand this almost from a leadership perspective, just because there's so much money at stake. And this was so much money at stake for you, plus risk, both from inside and out. Who resolves conflicts like that? So clearly, like in a billion-dollar organization, um, which is what your organization was, most billion-dollar organizations, nobody carries guns. But in yours, they did. Everybody did. So, <laughs> right. So, so how I, – I can't even imagine, like, how would you, as kind of the top of the pyramid here, start to resolve conflicts? Well, if I heard about it, I, I took care of it. If, if, if somebody in my – Took care of it, you know, means a lot of different things. So you, <laughs> you, you might want to explain that. Yeah, well, well I, I, I've never shot anybody. I've never killed anybody. I never had any, anybody whooped or anything like that. I never had to. Uh, yeah, and, and I just want to add, I mean, there was one section in your autobiography where you were kind of jumped by some people who were number twos, and you had, I felt you had this very non-confrontational way of dealing with them. You would basically... Buy them out of their equity almost in the book. business. <laughs> so, yeah, well, well, my cousin who I had uh, brought out from, from Texas, uh, who was, you know, who was poor like I was before I got started, uh, he thought he was could take over my, my whole operation. Um, but what he didn't know is that my guys had loyalty for me um, because we had grew up together and we kind of took care of each other all of our life. Um, I guess you could say we were almost like a gang, but we just didn't go out fighting and, and robbing and things like that. We rode bikes and skateboarded and, and played roller derby, and, and then we all started playing tennis uh, at one time. Uh, so, yeah, he did come in and try to take over my operation, but uh, uh, my guys didn't, didn't, didn't stand for it. But you're, So here you're running like a multi-hundred-million-dollar operation at the time. You were able to pay him off for... $50,000, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, but why was that enough for him when he knew there were hundreds of millions at stake? Well, he really didn't understand the business. Um, he came in at a level that when he came there, it was already making money, generating money, and he just had to walk in and pretty much just supervise guys. You know, he didn't have to come in. He didn't start, like, I started on the street. You know, I had to stand on the street when it was cold and uh, when it was hot, and the police would come by and... and make you lay on the ground and strip search you and all kind of stuff. He never went through that. So uh, he didn't really understand the business. He thought that he could just come in and by him running things for a while that my guys would all just abandon me because I wasn't around and, and go with him. But that wasn't the case because uh, these guys were like my little brothers. You know, I had taught them. I had showed them. And, and you know, most of these guys accredit me with their houses, their cars, and, and everything that they had, and they knew that uh, I could have been walked away from the drug business, but I only stayed in because uh, they got in late, and they were asking me to uh, help them establish themselves. 
is because so 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 you you did leave for a while and you came back. Uh, did you come back because you felt the number twos that you had left behind weren't quite uh, able to continue what you had started? And were you still kind of making a stream from it at that point, or? Yeah, that, that's that's part of the reason. Um, you know, we had to break down with with my cousin, um, and the business wasn't running fluent. It wasn't fluent like it was when 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 I was standing there. Define fluent. Like, what's not fluent versus fluent in this? Well, when when I'm there, there's basically no problems. Everything. Um, all my customers like to talk directly to me. I mean, even right now, in 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 in. Um, the businesses that I'm running today, everybody wants to talk to me. They don't want to talk to the to the second person because uh, they don't feel that they understand business and people the way I do. Uh, that's what I call fluent. Uh, when when JJ, my cousin, was running it, he uh, he ran it with an iron fist. You know, he wanted to beat people up. Uh, um, he was confrontational. You know, he liked to argue and he liked to show his dominance. And with me, people say that I'm humble and and um, I didn't really want people to know me. I didn't want people to know that I was a drug dealer. I didn't want them to know that I was the number one guy. Right, and it's, it's interesting to know that, so here you were, you know, $900 million worth of crack running through your hands, and the police didn't know what you looked like at that time. No, they didn't. So, okay, so you get, let's say you get a million dollars worth of kilos, and uh, now you're distributing it to all the distributors. Now the people underneath them don't really know who you are. I mean, they know who you are by name, but how now, how, how really is organization kept? Are those number twos able to keep some degree of leadership going? Like, how do you pass it down so that things don't immediately fall apart? Because you're still dealing with millions of dollars. Why isn't everybody, and the, millions of dollars of people who have guns. So why are they all just shooting each other at that point? Well, guns are not really the, the, the way that most drug dealers uh, resolve their issues. Uh, most of the, the smart drug dealers don't want violence because right. they know when violence come, come homicide. You know, homicide. The homicide police in L.A. at that time were the most sophisticated uh, uh, police in, in, in the business. Uh, drug enforcement later became uh, uh, the most sophisticated. But at that time, it was homicide. So, you know, you, you want to shy away from bringing homicide involved with what you're doing because – once they get involved, they're going to go through every detail. Uh, they're going to know everything that's going on with your operation, and it could be the downfall of your whole operation. So if I am, like, four levels down the chain, I don't know, how many levels would you say were from you to the guy buying? Yeah, probably four or five, maybe six. So I'm, I'm six levels down, say. How much am I making per week? Um, five, six thousand. Five, six thousand a week. Yeah. So... And then, and I have no idea, and, and let's say now I invest in that initial kind of grams or kilo or whatever, and I do it with a friend, and we have an argument. How does that conflict get resolved? Well, those guys that work with me on that level, they really didn't have conflict because basically what they would be doing is sitting in a house, and somebody would stick their arm in the window with money, and they would stick drugs back out the window, and then they could go and sit back on the couch and watch TV. Uh, that's great. And then... And then, so that so their customers were just driving up. They were my customers. Okay. They were my customers. They were my houses. Uh, uh, I would bring the people over and introduce them to them and say, "Hey, this is such and such. He's from such such area. When he comes through, this is his price." And and they basically had no contact with him. So you were kind of you were kind of you were buying these houses, 
and then you were kind of putting the people in them and then telling the customers where to go. You were directing traffic all the way down. Right. So, and I, I feel like that's not, again, as I said earlier, I, I, I have all of my <laughs> knowledge from the movie Colors. That doesn't really seem how, like, it worked there. <laughs> but I could understand why. Well, that's how my system worked. But then I had other guys who bought from me who would come to me and buy kilos at a time, you know, 10, 20 kilos who had their own organization. But what, what happened is that all of the young guys who I sold to started to mimic my mentality. They started to be like me. You know, they, they wouldn't wear the jewelry. Some of them did. Some of them bought big cars, you know, Rolls Royces and Ferraris. But the majority of them learned from me, and they copied me. What did they learn? They learned my low-keyness. They learned how I dealt with people. Um, they learned my price structure. And some of me became my competition. What, what if I was number two or number three in the, in the hierarchy, and I decided to cut things a little more, make it a little less pure, so that now I can charge cheap for the same amount and my customers wouldn't notice. Would you view that as, like, bad competition? Um, at one time, I didn't. Uh, but later on, I learned that, uh, you know, cutting the drugs wasn't something that the customer wanted. Uh, at one time, the customer wanted more for less. You know, they would come and say, okay, well, such and such is giving us this amount. And then you're like, well, I sold him that, so I know he couldn't give you that much. Uh, so then we started doing the same thing that they was doing. We started cutting it. But we found out that that's not what they wanted in the long run. They wanted it pure. Okay, so at this point, at the peak, uh, and then I do want to get to the, the star too, but at the peak, how much money were you making, let's say, a week or a year? Like 1986, how much did you make? 86 was, was one of my best years. Uh, that was right before the cops uh, put in, created the freeway task force. So I graduated high school that year, by the way. <laughs> so so we, were, we were doing really well. We had never had any, any police contact. Um, I was doing about a million dollars every day, and that would go up. In, from, in gross revenues? Uh, gross revenue. You said how much money was mine to keep? Yes. Profit? Yes. Um, Say out of a million bucks, I could keep anywhere from two fifty to three hundred thousand out of every every million. day. Yeah, every day. So that's like probably about ninety million a year. Yeah, I guess I'm, I didn't add it up. <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's uh, a good number. So, so I noticed a lot. At some point, you were kind of you were capping out on how much you can actually buy per week just because the customers weren't there or the, or the sellers weren't there and you were pouring it into um, motels, uh, others, other business establishments, like let's call them legitimate business establishments. What, why at that point, and I would understand the need to come out of where you were coming out of, hard family situation, hard area, everybody wants to get rich, they don't know a way out, but you got rich. And you started pouring it into, like, these great legitimate businesses. What happened? Why didn't you just say, okay, um, this, is, this is it for me. I have kids. I'm, I'm ready to go legit. Well, and you had your way out because the police didn't even know what you looked like. Well, one of the things I found out about myself and about my businesses is that my businesses never made a profit. And one of the things I found out is because I love those businesses, but the people who I put in charge of them, didn't really care about them. Like, like when you say there's this, like a, the motel or the car the shop. The motel, the car shop, uh, the car wash, the beauty salons, the shoe stores, the junkyards, all of my businesses, I 
call myself helping people who didn't love that particular business. It was businesses that I saw to be profitable and that I thought would be beneficial to the group, but the group didn't feel the same way about them. Uh, and the other thing that I that I well, discovered, I'm, I'm sorry, to interrupt. when you say the group, the other people you're working with in the just, like your number twos were also involved. in No, other no, none of my drug guys. They didn't work legitimate businesses. If you sold drugs with me, you couldn't work at the motel. You couldn't work at the junkyard. You sold drugs. That was what you did. Uh, I picked other friends who weren't in that business. They didn't want to sell drugs. You know, they were working legitimate jobs. And I would go to them and say, look, let's start this business together. You run it. I'll finance it. And why didn't you – so they weren't profitable, but why didn't you – just like you were had your eye on the leadership and it, it's almost a weird phrase to use, but the organizational structure of the drug business, why didn't you have that same eye for profit on I – mean, I mean, you just said in the drug business you were holding on to like, you know, $90 million a year or whatever. How come you didn't have that same eye for profit on these other businesses? I ran the drug business. I was in it. I, I did it. My junkyard, I never – I mean, I, I, I helped set it up. It was my idea. Uh, I helped with it, but I didn't run it. I never got into the structure of how I ran. Uh, this is really my first time uh, taking crack at any other business other than the drug business. Uh, so, so again, it seems like the drug business was giving you something else other than money, right? So, oh, absolutely. You know, here's your place where you're back in your neighborhood. You're making everybody you grew up with rich, um, I'm assuming, more or less. And, and you were, you were getting, that was your addiction almost, that feeling. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's addicting to, to, to beat the cops. You know, every time you move a hundred keys or 200 kilos down the street and the cops pass by you and, and they didn't stop the car or or you got away with it. it, it, It's a rush. Uh, But the money becomes addictive too. You know, Um, I rode around every day with like $40,000 that I gave away into the community people who were losing their cars, who couldn't pay their rent, uh, guys who were in prison, you know, uh, one of my guys' mother might come up and say, oh, you know, such and such is in prison, he needs some money. Uh, I would give him the money, I would pay attorney fees. Um, so but Part of that seemed, I mean, a part of that I'm sure made you feel good because this is the community you grew up in. Part of it turned out to be strategic because I remember there was one point uh, – you were arrested. The bail was, I forget the exact number, it was over a million dollars. and But it needed to be a million dollars where the judge could trace it was coming from a legitimate source. And every mother on the block you grew up in mortgaged their house to, to put up their house as for bail for you. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that the cops couldn't understand is how uh, my community uh, liked me so much. I mean, and, it, and it's almost that way now. I mean, I have a... a an appeal inside of the ghettos around the country that is is unbelievable even to myself. Um, I can go to any project probably in this country and and they open up the doors for me and, and invite me in because of the goodwill that that I did from the drug business and so so again when you when you were starting now, um, it seemed like unlike a lot of uh, I want to say entrepreneurs and also probably the other people who were in the drug business at the time. You took a new product, which was crack versus PCP and marijuana and whatever else, and you weren't just kind of buying your amount and selling it. 
You were buying it, selling it, and then doubling up every week. Yes, that was... Uh, was, was anybody else doing that? Were you like... No, when I, when I started, the guys who, who were doing it before me, who I basically learned from, uh, they just kept buying the eight-track, three grams, over and over and over and over. So they were making a living? They were making a living. Some bought ounces, and they bought the ounce over and over and over. Uh, there's a story that I usually tell when I go to speak at high schools about uh, two of my friends that when, when I first got started, uh, one was selling marijuana and one was selling PCP. Well, they both was... What I called rich, they both had about $20,000 a piece when I, when I first got started. That was my estimate. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Well, once I started making money from selling cocaine, I was dealing with doctors, lawyers, entertainers, and, and they were dealing with people from my neighborhood who really didn't have money. So I went to them and I told them, I said, look, you're making your money $10 at a time. My money comes two and $300 at a time. Uh, you ought to come in and invest with me. So they did. We all went in together and invested. Well, when I got up to $16,000, I don't know how much they had, but both of them went and bought brand new cars. One bought a brand new Cadillac. One bought a brand new, brand new van. Well, what I did is I went and bought a pound of cocaine. So I came back to the neighborhood, and I had a pound of cocaine. And when they finally stopped riding around in their new cars, they was ready to go back and re-up. So we called a Nicaraguan and told him that... Uh, they wanted to buy two ounces of cocaine, uh, which was at that time might have been worth like $5,000. Uh, so he told me, he said, well, you sell it to them. Uh, you just bought a pound and you got, um, they were paying like $2,400 an ounce. He told me that I got them for uh, $2,200 an ounce. So he told me that I could sell to them and make $200 profit, which I hadn't noticed. So what wound up happening is, that they started buying two ounces from me every day. So every day, without me doing any work, I made $400 off of them. That $400 started to pay my rent, take care of my girlfriends, feed everybody that wanted. <laughs> feed everybody. You were a young guy. So. Yeah, I was, I was just like 22, 21, 22 years old. So uh, that $400 just started to generate and then I still was hustling on my own, standing out on the block just like they was. And that money, I was able to just keep saving it and putting it back. And that's how I was able to get up to buying 10 pounds, 20 pounds. And so what was the first time you made a million-dollar purchase? You had a million dollars cash that you could have just put in your pocket, and instead you bought cocaine because you knew you would make $2 million out of it. Or I don't even know what the margins were. Uh Probably like 84. I think I, I think our first purchase was more like $3 million. When we spent millions... I think it was three million the first time we uh, we spent a million bucks. And what what kind of profit did you make on that three million? Uh, at that time, would you get credit then, or did they want cash? They wanted cash. I think we was like forty thousand short of having all the money. He let me go with the forty thousand until until later. Uh, I think we were paying thirty five per kilo and selling for like forty something, like forty five, forty six. So so during this time. And particularly as you were building up and you didn't quite maybe know exactly who you were dealing with above, was there any point, obviously you were always worried about the police, but was there any point where you were worried about either internal to your organization, upwards or downwards, that you could be in trouble, like physically? No, no, not really. I mean, I always knew I was going to jail. Jail was something I was already prepared for. Uh, uh, but by then, let me, and let me ask you that because obviously that sounds like a scary prospect. 
you probably knew a lot of people already in jail. I did. And so you knew when you got there, you probably wouldn't be there forever, and you knew everybody there. I thought I wasn't going to be there forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, and to be clear, you got a life sentence in 1996. I did. We're, we're going to reel back and forth again. The moment you got that life sentence, were you expecting it, and what did you think? Uh, well, when I was getting it, when, when I first got arrested, I wasn't expecting it. But after I learned the system and learned how the system worked, then I was expecting to get a life sentence. Um, so yes, uh, at one time I wasn't expecting to get a life sentence. Then I was, then I didn't think I should. And then, and you, and then you fought it yes. and, and now I you're, now it. you're here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no longer there. So, okay. So you're, you're starting out, you're doubling up. Um, at what point do you think is the first point you could have just gotten out and said, okay, I'm rich. I'm my, I'm going to take care of my mom and my brother and my kids, no worries. I'm going to get into legitimate businesses. At what point was the first point you could have done that? Well, I mean, at any part in, in, in the business, because uh, what I found out about myself is my work ethic. You know, I have a work ethic that, that's crazy. Um, but you always aimed it for the drug business. You, you almost, like, refused to aim it towards these other things that you, that you bought because you were, you were smart and realized this is a great way to replow these Yeah, people told me that I should, that I should invest in real estate. And, and, you you and owned all the houses. Right. Well, I didn't, I mean, when, when you figure, you got a guy who, who's totally illiterate, had never read a book. Uh, my mom owned her house. You know, her house cost her like 15000 uh, But there was nobody to really, like, show you how to do business. Uh, in the drug business, I just stumbled and bumbled up on uh, what I eventually did. You know, I didn't know anything about compound interest and none of that stuff. But you were compounding. 100% I was compounding it. Yes. <laughs> you were smarter than all these other people doing compounding. <laughs> I, I, what I found out is that I was doing business practices that I don't, I don't know where they came from. You know, the only thing that I could say is that I learned them from people as I, as I went along because most of the people that I was selling drugs to were pretty smart people. You know, when I first started selling drugs, there wasn't the crack mothers that, that they showed on TV with the people. These were like doctors, lawyers, uh, entertainers. How did you meet them? I mean, one person just introduces you to another one and another one and another one. Uh, later on, I learned uh, if I went to a new city, you know, after I, after I already had, had learned the business, well, what I would do is I would just say, just introduce me to one person that smokes cocaine so i would go there and then i might take like two ounces and i would go to their house and i was it's about this big they call it a cookie and, and you go there with a cookie and it's worth in that town maybe like four thousand dollars and you say you know what if you get 10 friends over here right now i'll let you guys have that and they would get on the phone and they would go to calling all their friends and then they would sit there and they would smoke and uh i would have one of my guys just to get everybody's phone number and that's how my clientele would start uh, so the next time you called all the phone numbers, no, said, and they would start to call now. you too because you know my price was going to be cheaper than anybody else's price. What was the percentage of your business outside of LA versus LA at the peak? Mostly out of LA. I mean, you know, you're talking about when when a kilo was say, for instance, when a kilo was thirty thousand in LA, it was seventy thousand in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, St. Louis, it was. 60 or 70,000, you know, Texas, 60,000. So uh, a lot of business went out of state. 
So, so it's worth bringing up your main suppliers. Uh, this guy uh, Danilo Bandello. 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 He, uh, he, he um, turned out to be a central figure, or at least theorized to be a central figure in the Iran Contra Sandinista thing. So, this is what I don't understand. So, the CIA was already somehow getting money to the Sandinistas in order to buy the no, cocaine. the Contras. The Contras. The Contras. The Sorry. Sorry. Right, right. By, Sandinistas were backed by Russia. Right. The, the, the bad guys at the time. So, <laughs> so, they were already getting the Contras money. And then, what was the thinking? Like, did they want to then double that money before plowing it into guns? Like, why, why did it then get into the, the streets of, of L.A.? Well, what Danilo said when he was on the witness stand is that they had the first amount of money after Congress had told uh, the, the, uh, the White House that they could no longer back the Contras, that the next money they got was $18 million. And he said that uh, it wasn't enough money that Russia had gave the Sandinistas $100 million. So you put 18 million against 100, it's, it's no, no contest. So what they decided to do was take that money and buy drugs with it and flip it. I see. So they needed to stretch. They, they were desperate. They had an urgent problem, which was to stretch this 18 to something that could combat the Sandinistas. So they went to you. Well, yeah, they can't. I mean, I don't know if that's how they got to me or not. Uh, but that's the way he explained it on the witness stand. He testified against me. You know, he became my, 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 you know, he set me up with the cops and, and um, testified against me and everything. So when he took the witness stand, uh, that's what he said. If you just, like, if you were to talk to him right now, like, if he was sitting here, what would you say? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I ain't mad at him, though, no more. You know, I, at one time I wanted to kill him, you know, uh, but I don't feel like that anymore. I, I, I forgive him. I understand uh, where he came from, you know. Uh, <clears throat> he was put in a position where it was his life for, or my life, and, you know, he chose to live uh, his life, and he felt that it was better for him to be around his kids than for me to uh, be around mine, even though it was his mistake that had uh, gotten him busted. Um, he just felt that it was better for me to go in than for him to go in. And why does everybody associate gang violence now with this period in, you know, the eight, from... You were, you were basically going full force from 81 to, like, 89 and then some periods in the 90s. Uh, why does everyone associate gang violence with the rise of crack? Well, they have a misconception uh, of, of what cocaine and gang uh, activity is. Uh, in L.A., gangs were already being violent. They were already gang-banging. Um, now, what did happen is with the drug money, they did buy bigger guns and more guns. Uh, but for the most part, for the first time in my life, I'd ever saw Crips and Bloods hanging out together were on the same block selling drugs. And was this, was this because they were working with you and you were, like, in, enforcing, like, the no violence? Or what was happening, like, in the communication between them? I believe they were doing it for the money. I mean, uh, if you're making more money than you ever made before in your life, uh, would you jeopardize that because this guy's wearing red or this guy's wearing blue? Uh, I don't think so. And then what happened then? Like, well, how did the gang violence sort of erupt? Or, or? Well, I think that when, when, when they took the leaders, because they had, in the 80s, they had this, this 
big thing where Ronald Reagan and them started the, the minimum mandatory sentences and, and they started going around rounding up all the guys who were in charge. They didn't get the lower guys. They got the, the top guys. That, that, that's the way the system's supposed to work. So when they rounded up all the top guys, then it left all these other guys to start fending for themselves, and they started fighting over territory and, and just, just went into total chaos, I believe. So after you got out, so you got out in, in 2009, the probation's over. You've been, you've been involved in a, a variety of businesses, but, and we're, we were talking a little bit earlier, you mentioned that um, in, in almost each one of these businesses or in some of these businesses, somebody would kind of, you know, somebody, somebody would either screw you over or would have to get sued or there would, there was, suddenly there was more legal activity happening than happened in your entire, like, decade and a half of the drug business. And so it made me think that when laws and contracts are involved, it almost gives people this implicit permission to break those contracts because then the legal system could solve it as opposed to some other type of hierarchy or system. Yeah, I mean – from what I'm learning about legal business is that they have their, – their ethic is worse than the streets. You know, in the streets, most people honor their word because it could get them killed if you do something wrong. Well, in legal business, they're just like, oh, sue me. Um, and I had – Which just happens to me like every other week. <laughs> me as well. I mean, um, I had money taken out of the bank account that, that we had – you know, one of my partners went to the bank account and took money out that he wasn't supposed to. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, my documentary ad on Al Jazeera TV, and my partners who who helped me produce it, uh, they sold it to Al Jazeera without my signature. And in our contract, you know, it's the rights to your life, right? And my our contract clearly said that we couldn't do any distribution deals without my okay. And then they took my producer's credit off as well. Um, so it's just a different world. What do they say when you call them and say, you know, we had a contract, why didn't you follow it? Well, they said, well, that's not what the contract says, and, and uh, then, you know, lawyers get involved and, and so forth. You didn't, you didn't pull any, like, I'm fucking Rick Ross. You didn't do that to them? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, try, I try. I don't, I don't go to that, you know, to that, to that, to that uh, rim uh I like to just do business, you know, and, and keep it straight up. Uh, I don't try to do business just because I'm Rick Ross and, and just because of who I am. Uh, I want to win my business on my work ethic and, and uh, my abilities to, to accomplish my goals. And, and, and what are the things that are occupying your time most right now? Right now? Uh, wow. Uh, I travel the country speaking to uh, the kids, which is what I like the most uh, about doing uh, I like to go back to jails and talk to guys in prison about how I uh, turned my prison into a, into a university and how you, I believe. You learned how to read and write in prison. I did. I did. I read over 300 books, too, before I came home. Uh, I read the Wall Street Journal every day, the USA Today, L.A. Times. Uh, I became a, a, a consumer of information. Um, I don't know if you read the article that they did on me in, sure. in, in L.A. Magazine. Yes, Jesse um, Katz. But when Jesse was talking about writing my obituary, because uh, he didn't think I was going to ever get out, Jesse was a reporter that used to ride around with the cops uh, when they was trying to catch me. He was the gang reporter for L.A. 
uh, times, and uh, me and him built up a relationship over the years, and uh, he came right up from here, Lompoc, uh, USP, the New Rock. He interviewed me, and he was talking about writing my obituary, and I had learned the law so well that when I went into the courtroom, I felt that I was the smartest person in the courtroom, even though my lawyer uh, had graduated from Harvard and my prosecutor had graduated from Yale. My judge was a chief judge out of San Diego. Uh, I felt that, not just felt, but I knew that I knew more about my particular case than anybody else in the courtroom. Uh, so Jesse had wrote this article where he was talking about writing my obituary, and he says that I was more buoyant than I ever was before. And uh, in that article, we talked about some of the things that I would be doing. And uh, it's crazy that I knew that I would be sitting in places like this here, you know, that, uh, that I knew absolutely nothing about. But I had studied so well and studied so many people that were doing business. And I know that I learned how to transfer my drug dealing skills over to the things I'm doing right now. Um, so, so thinking about that, and and again, just naive question. Given the experience, and you were you were just you were essentially working twenty four hours a day. You had to be. So that's what I do now. Hmm? That's what I do now. <laughs> right. So you, you kept with it. So what are would you say the three or four essential skills that you had to have to survive in such a chaotic, really business environment? Well. Uh, um, the key thing that I believe that, that I possess that most people don't is that I want for the people around me the same thing that I want for myself. I want them to be just as successful as I am. So were your number twos, did they get just as successful as you? Not, no, not all of them. Just because you want it for people don't mean that they're going to accept it. You know, uh, I, I learned when I went to prison in James Allen's book that you, know, you can show a guy how to work out, but he has to want to work out on his own to, to be as strong as he could be. And some people just don't uh, thrive that level. Some did, you know. Like I said, some became my competition. Uh, and that's the same thing in, in, in business now. Okay, so you wanted success for the people who work for you. What was, what's number two? Number two would, uh, would be honest and truthful. And, um, like if somebody... Um, came to you with the wrong amount of money and they said, oh, this or this happened and you knew that they were lying. I probably would take the loss. You would just take the loss? Would yeah. you talk to them about it? Yeah, I would. I would give them a warning and say, you know what? Next time, this better not happen. Uh, and then the next time that they came, I would take more precaution in dealing with them. You know, I would make sure that their money was separated, was counted, uh, that it wasn't counterfeit money in there. Um, things of that nature. And number three, to me, seemed to be your low-key persona. That that's how you sort of stayed on top yeah, by well, pretending to be on the bottom. Definitely that's one of them. And, and, and two, what I found out about myself is that I wasn't doing it for the money anymore. It was more of the rush, uh, the power, the, the wanting to be on top. Uh, because I didn't spend money. You know, I, I never... I think... The first new car I got, I won out of a crap game shooting dice one night. I walk in and they were shooting dice and I throw $300 on the floor and it goes up to like 45000 And I take that and I go buy a car. So I didn't spend my money on, on clothes, cars, jewelry, uh, 
all my money that I spent was on businesses, things that, that I felt was going to make the money continuously to grow. I think that that's another uh, key point is being, uh, what did they call when you save your money? Just a good saver. <laughs> <laughs> One final question. Why are you a vegan? Why am I a vegan? Huh? It's a health conscious crowd. It started off as a bet. Uh, one of my friends, <laughs> one of my friends, bet me a hundred dollars. We were in prison. He bet me a hundred dollars that I couldn't, uh, that I couldn't stop eating meat, and that I was hooked. You know, I was hooked. Punk, you know, or the, the meat people got you. You can do anything they want you to do. So, They're drug uh, dealers, just like drug dealers. You're right. Uh, so. I made the bet for six months that I couldn't do it. I won the bet. Um, he also gave me a book to read called Do You Live to Eat or Eat to Live? And I read the book, and, and when I saw some of the stuff in the book, and I was kind of disgusted, but uh, after the bet was over, I went back to eating chicken. I ate chicken one day after, and it made me sick of the stomach, and I never ate meat again. All right, well, Rick Ross, thanks so much. This no, has been thank really you. great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Really pleasure. All mine, all mine. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.